Today's guest worked for 18 months to close on a business he'd set his heart on. Ben Breyer is a guy who goes all in, and he was all in on that deal. But it died, despite his passion, and Ben was left a year and a half older, $150,000 poorer, and with a negative balance sheet. He questioned whether to go on searching. Was this path of buying a business really for him? Well, being freed of that dead-end deal allowed him to open his mind to other listings, like Meyer Gage, a decades-old super niche manufacturing business, a business that Ben was sitting in as CFO and owner of for this interview. A few themes to listen for in our conversation. First, the postmortem on that first painful dead deal. Also, using conventional debt rather than an SBA loan. And finally, working with a financial backer. You'll hear us discuss this model as a little bit self-funded searcher, a little bit traditional search fund. Interesting model, if you can get it. Okay, please enjoy this interview with Ben Breyer, owner of Meyer Gage. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Listeners of Acquiring Minds know that for almost any business you acquire, its success comes down to the people and how you develop and manage them as their new leader. Thing is, in addition to management, there is also a lot of process and bureaucratic work when it comes to your new employees. Payroll, compliance, HR technology, hiring, to name but a few. These processes are crucial to get right, but at the same time distract from where you want to be putting your energy, in leadership. So, Aspen HR is an HR firm and PEO that takes this work off your plate and handles it with the care it demands. Aspen is owned and run by Mark Sinatra, himself a successful former searcher. So Aspen's own leadership understands the HR challenges that searchers have post-acquisition. The firm is offering Acquiring Minds listeners a complimentary pre-acquisition HR and PEO review for your target business. Check out AspenHR.com or contact Mark directly at mark at AspenHR.com. Ben Breyer. Welcome to Acquiring Minds. Great to be here. Thanks, Will. Ben, you bought a 65-year-old manufacturing business, a manufacturer of gauges. I didn't know what gauges were. You had to explain it to me. We'll have you explain it to the audience here in a little <laughs> bit. But it's a really neat business and well-earned. Your search was long and expensive, and we're going to hear the whole saga today. <laughs> Start us off, Ben, please, with some background on you. Sure, sure. Um, appreciate the the intro. I can't wait to jump into some of the uh, some of the topics there. Um, so I grew up a, a finance guy, sort of true, true and true finance guy. Um, got uh, my career sort of you know started at, at Vanguard, and I sort of grew up at Vanguard. I thought you know that I would um, you know be there. Um, you know, for a long time, and I was. Um, you know, grew up in credit research there. Um, you know, picking bonds for Vanguard's bond funds. Um, so I got exposure to you know investment grade corporate bonds, and um, 
over the course of my time there, I got into structured products, um, you know, asset-backed securities and commercial mortgage-backed securities. And so I was doing some like really cool, you know, funky analysis, you know, looked at deals that were uh, backed by a fleet of tugboats, for example. Um, so we did some really cool things. And um, as, you know, my career there went on, I sort of got more interested in uh, getting away from a computer. You know, information is, you know, for the public markets, information is getting priced in at an increasingly rapid rate uh, with AI and, um, you know, the base of technological, you know, uh, advancement is it's, it's price allows people to price in information really quickly. And so I was like, man, if I'm an analyst and I'm, you know, a research guy, where can I go to get as far away from a computer as possible? Where can I go where like the information is like dirty, like not accessible, like, you know, where can I go? And so and, and Ben, this means to, cause you're trying to, this is kind of like a, where to, where can you still find alpha? Where can you yes, still get an edge? That's correct. Okay. I mean, yeah, that's a great, thank you for clarifying. Yes. It's like my like sort of personal search for alpha, um, mm. you know, in terms of not only just like my financial, you know, uh, you know, situation, but also just like my career, like where can I go to have a career, uh, uh, of, you know, searching for alpha, which is what I love. And Ben, how did you learn about search itself? Because um, it, st there's still usually a kind of a discovery moment that this is a thing people do, that there's SBA loans, that there's a way to do this in a path. How, how, what was your, your first exposure? Yeah, great question. Um, great question. So um, from Vanguard, I, I went to a small independent sponsor um, called Mainline Equity. Uh, in uh you know outside of philadelphia where i'm from and i got exposed to like the independent sponsor model um and i you know i liked that i was working you know working in that uh learned a lot which was which was uh helped to sort of you know uh, help me sort of to develop my own perspective on the market um and at that time i was also going back to business school at nyu and one day uh a guy uh, a friend of mine said hey like do you know what like search funds are? And I said, I have no idea, man. Like never, <laughs> you know, I have no clue. And he's like, well, it's totally your, your thing. Uh, this is totally you. You should go to Harvard's um, search fund conference. They have it every year. You should go to it. It's in two weeks um, on a Sunday morning. And so I was like, great. Um, so that just happened to be a weekend uh, when I had class at NYU. Class ended on a late on a Saturday. Took the train up to Boston. Um, the conference was on a Sunday. And so it's, you know, in December in Boston. So it's freezing cold. Sunday morning, um, you know, you know, trying to find my way around Harvard. You finally, you know, find the auditorium, get in there. Um, and there was probably, I mean, that year there were probably, I don't know, 50 or 100 people there, which didn't seem like a lot. This year auditorium is pretty big. Um, and I sat in the back. And I started to listen to people talk about search and SMB. And I immediately was like, oh, very intrigued. <laughs> and I was like, my, oh my, my friend was right. This he is, totally this is me. Right. He, and I was like, oh my God, move to the front. You know, I moved to the front, you know, uh, <laughs> took out, you know, my notebook was laser, became laser focused on this. And um, that was my, that was that moment where I was like, wow, like if those people, can do it like anybody can do it like i i it never really occurred to me that anybody can do this like literally anybody um 
you just need certain tools in your toolbox and you have to have a certain sort of risk appetite um, and some, you know, some, uh, some courage and that's mm -hmm. the formula. And I was like, wow. And, and Ben, you, so on the one hand, you were looking for some differentiator for yourself in your career, some sort of alpha, but I, I suspect what you, what you were hearing up there on stage that day in Cambridge was not just kind of some financial argument for that. There was there was a more a, a holistic something something broader was resonating with you. What was it? Yes, 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 yes. Um, definitely. So the the financial piece. I didn't mean like that's just teeny small piece. Um, mm. uh, it was an opportunity to sort of uh, get the keys to the bus. I say um, mm -hmm. where. Um, you have more, um, more autonomy in your career and your life. Um, and you have an opportunity to like, you know, get to the C-suite at a relatively early age. Um, so you take on more responsibility, um, and you basically sort of have a chance to live and die by your sword, so to speak, you know? Um, and I liked that. I was at a point sort of in my life where I had learned from, you know, people throughout my career. And I was like, man, kind of now I'm in business school, I'm learning new ideas and I'm, you know, interacting with my classmates. And I just was like, man, I want to go like, you know, I want to go swing my bat. Like, I want to go, mm -hmm. you know, I want to go try this out. Great. So you uh, walk out of the, uh, the auditorium on the Harvard yard that day feeling inspired, like this is, this is for you. So then what? Um, <laughs> and so, uh, one day I'm in, uh, in business school, I'm in my marketing class, uh, Professor Carr. So one day he brought in a guy um, named Steve Garrow and uh, Steve Garrow started to speak uh, about his background and what he does. And uh, it was remote, it was remote. So this was like during COVID, you know, height of, height of COVID. And I'm standing there in my kitchen, you know, watching this guy talk about himself and what he's doing. And I'm like, man, if I could close my eyes and picture myself in 20 years, like I'd be that guy. Like I'd be, mm -hmm. you know, that's me. Um, you know, he's talking about, you know, being a college athlete, being an English major, you know, being a finance guy. Like I was like all these, you know, I, it was all the same, you know, very similar. Um, and so of course, you know, I like raised my hand virtually and I was like, Hey, like, can I talk to you? Like, I'm, you know, I'm Ben and I'd like to talk to you because uh, what you're saying is really interesting. And and Ben, what was he saying? What does Steve Garrow do? Yeah. Yeah. So he was just talking about ETA, but he wasn't, he didn't use that term, um, mm. but he was talking about buying businesses, running businesses, selling businesses, you know, working with, you know, uh, family and founder owned businesses. And um, he, uh, he has his hands in a lot of different things, but um, uh, they were all sort of like, you know, some of it is like sort of what, you know, true entrepreneurship, you know, uh, or, you know, uh, zero entrepreneurship to one. In, a, in a traditional sense, yep, zero to one. Um, but it was also like ETA stuff. And so, um, you know, he was involved in a lot of different, like cool, like weird deals, like, um, uh, you know, casinos in, you know, Montana and like, you know, uh, you know, you know, a gaming company and esports and all these like weird things. I'm like, wow, like he's totally, you know, he's open to these opportunities and he talked about learning. And I think um, this is like a big theme uh, in search, in my opinion, and in ETA uh, in general is just like, 
you have you have to, to to be successful in my opinion you have to love learning this is about mm -hmm. learning the entire process is about learning um about everything you know you're during due diligence you're learning about industries you're learning about the company you're learning about yourself um and then when you post close you're learning about how to run the business you're learning from the employees so the, you have to love learning and he sort of talked about that he's like i'm a professional like learner and i was like mm. I love learning. Like I really love, like, you know, I love learning. Uh, and so he's like, okay, like, yeah, sure, dude. Like, you know, this million people, you know, say the same shit, like, okay, like whatever. Um, and so I was like, can we like keep in touch? And he's like, yeah, sure. Um, and so like we kept in touch and, um, he, you know, he started off like, you know, he had a little project for me at first, um, you know, something basic, you know, little research project. Uh, and he's like, Hey, can you help me with like X, Y, Z? Um, and uh i was like sure like totally like yes i will yes i can help you with this and so you know i did what he asked returned the you know my analysis to him he's like okay like this is really good like awesome like how about this can you help me with this and so like th throughout you know uh, over the course of probably a year and a half um uh, uh yeah about a year and a half like he and i had we were working together on these different projects um random and now, you know, random analyses on all sorts of things. Um, and so he, we had built up this rapport and it came down to, uh, you know, the end of business school. Uh, and I was, you know, about to, you know, graduate and stuff. And at that time I'd been, you know, working at mainline equity while I was in school. And I was like, Hey, like, I kind of want to go do my own thing. Like, would you, I want to pursue ETA like full time. Um, I want to do a self-funded search where you know it gives me a lot of optionality, which is another big theme. Um, and I was like, I, I I want to know will you will you back me if I find a company? Like, will you write the equity check? And he's like, yes. And so I was like, awesome, green light. So um, uh, that's sort of how we got started, and that's sort of how the uh, how I got sort of started in search. Um, it was just you know just by chance that he came to talk and um it just was by chance that you know i had a chance to work with him before we actually started searching which i think is really important and did you guys work out any kind of terms at this point were you thinking 10 10 80 kind of sba deal or was it more of just kind of like a directionally find a good business and we'll figure it out yeah wild west um no nothing in <laughs> writing um just a handshake deal um just a handshake deal. You already know that business owners are making amazing use of virtual assistants, often based in the Philippines. And while virtual assistants are helpful, virtual professionals are transformative. More Staffing is a boutique agency that hires A players in the Philippines, not for simple tasks, but for deep competency work. Think operators, supply chain managers, controllers, more Staffing de-risks your engagement with a 12-month guarantee to you, and they provide coaching for six months to their talent when an engagement begins. That means your hire is coached in the background, no additional cost to you, so that your working relationship flourishes and is as successful as it can be. Global Staffing is increasingly the norm, and building the muscle within your business to take advantage of it will be crucial in the years ahead. Speak with more staffing about the pool of capable, affordable managers they can connect you with. Check out morenow.co. That's morenow.co.
I want to hear about the, of course, the search and business that you did buy, and you've had a lot go on since you closed on that business. So we just need to be paying attention to time. But I want to give time um, for you to tell the story of the business you didn't buy because it was such a long time. So can you give us, can you give us like a few minutes <laughs> on the precision metal business? Yeah, I mean, yeah. This is and this and this is when we first talked. Yeah, you were yeah. you were you were dealing with that deal. Yeah. So let let's hear this in brief. It's pretty, pretty a uh, pretty hard one to condense because it's yeah, a really long story. But go yeah. ahead. I think that that deal was dealing with me. So we looked at you know a lot of deals. Found a precision sheet metal uh, manufacturer um, in uh, in the Northeast, um, and uh, it seemed to sort of initially check off a lot of the boxes that were hard to check off, you know, you know, typically, you know, you don't, you're not going to check off a lot of the big boxes right away, um, or at all. Right. And then you pass on the deal and you move on, but you started to peel, peel back the layers of the onion here. And I was liking what I was seeing, you know, it was close by and you seemed to sort of fit this thesis that we started to, um, that started to formulate as the search went on. And, um, and so at that point, like I had, a, you have a really, as like a self-funded searcher, you have a really important choice to make. And this, I think about this a lot, like, um, like conventional search fund and ETA wisdom tells you, Hey, you found a deal, you're doing preliminary due diligence. That's great. The odds of you closing are very small. So you want to keep, keep putting deals in the top of the funnel. You always want deals in your funnel. You want to maintain mm -hmm. your pipeline. You want to do, you know, keep. And so that sounds great, right? Like theoretically yes that sounds awesome in practice that's like for you know a self-funded searcher or you know without a, you know a full research team like you're not going to be able to do that and so choice was okay go all in you know on this this deal or sort of stick my toe in but try to you know and so i was like all right look, based on my initial research so far like i'm all in like i'm closing this deal like i am i'm all in um <laughs> and so uh yeah if i'm all in on something it means like i'm really all in and so uh what happened over the course of however many years i guess uh i guess it was probably about a year a little over maybe um uh it was a <laughs> i guess a years long like due uh due diligence dance uh that we did why didn't it work out what and, and yeah why yeah, work great out? question. So I think we, I think initially, and this is a good lesson, I think, for other um, people pursuing these sorts of deals. I think there's a couple of mistakes, not mistakes, but a couple of choices that that we made, and I, I made is you know my choices that uh, probably wish I didn't do. So I think trying to buy a business and the real estate, you know, a lot of times these you know baby boomers, you know, they own the business and the real estate, very common theme, um, and typically they want to sell both, right, to monetize their assets to you know retire, move on. Um, trying to buy real estate and a business at the same time is really hard, you know, really hard. Trying to buy uh, real estate in this, you know, uh, that's had manufacturing activities on it for a long time in this particular state uh, that has, you know, very you know, tight environmental regulations and laws. That's like a full project in and of it's like a, that's just like a big, that's a lot to take on. So I wish that we had focused on like just the business first. Mm -hmm. You know, buying a business is really hard in and of, to, of itself, right? Especially mm -hmm. when you're dealing with a seller that um, super emotional, really hard to work with, um, uh, had a very, you know, very rigid view of the world and the process, and um, 
so, you know, I wish that we had just focused on just the business first and done the real estate second. So we pursued both and um, we got into, uh, you know, the environmental stuff. And in this particular state, um, there are these certain rules where you sort of have to do, you know, a phase one, um, you know, environmental you know, site assessment. And depending on what comes up with on the phase one, which is basically just like a book report, you have to do a phase two, which then you start spending money, you know, drilling through concrete and setting up, you know, monitoring wells to, you get it just, and so we got caught, I got caught on, uh, on an environmental, uh, due diligence roller coaster, um, and racked up, you know, these of, you know, north of a hundred grand on doing phase one, phase two, phase three, um, uh, all, all the while, like there were, you know, there were issues with the business that I probably, that's where I should have been spending my time. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, you know, and with the seller, my relationship with the seller, which is really important, like that sort of took a backseat to like these big environmental things. Since those are, you know, I call those like showstoppers or deal killers. Like it, it, it just was too much. And the seller mm -hmm. just, you know, momentum's really important in this space, obviously. And people have talked about that here before. It's very true. You got to keep up momentum to get across the finish line and momentum just stalled out and do the due diligence process just, you know, it took too long and um, we just lost momentum. Um, and uh, so finally, you know, it just, you know, after racking up 150 grand of uh, dead deal fees, like it just was too expensive. Like, um, and so. So you know, did the, you walk or did the seller walk? Yeah, the seller walked and I'm glad he did. Um, because I, again, I was all in, I'm literally all in. I did not look at another deal during that time. All I cared about was closing this business. It's all I talked about. It's just, I was all in. And, and, and you're glad that the seller walked because you realize in retrospect, it wasn't a great business and you, uh, honey badger that you are never would have let go. I would have never. So you let needed go. him to let go. And I it's, never, and it's it good. still is a great, I mean, it is, a, it, I do think it's a really interesting opportunity. I, I really do, um, but uh, I am glad that I am glad that he walked. I uh, would not have let go as easily. To crystallize, like some of this stuff that you learned, it was you feel like you got too fixated on things related to the real estate and the environmental tests and so on, which were really expensive, both in both monetarily, but also in your attention, and so. To, to the neglect of diligencing the business itself, nurturing your relationship with the seller, nurturing the, the, your relationship with his deal team. That's, Is that that's one of the main lessons. Um, that's one. G give us one more. Yeah, the, the other one, and I would say the, the probably the top one. Your relationship with the seller is super important. So, as you know, uh, searcher investor, you're looking at the seller, right? Um, and understanding his or her capabilities, how are they involved in the business? Is this someone that is going to work with us through the diligence process? Like all, you know, you're asking yourself all these questions. You also want to put the same uh, level of, of scrutiny on the, the members of the seller's team, the accountant, the lawyer. You want to make sure that they've done deals before um, in this space. If they're also inexperienced in the SMB space and, you know, buying and selling, you know, small businesses, you not only will be educating the seller or trying to educate the seller, but you'll also be trying to educate the accountant and the lawyer as to like what the norms are in, you know, I call it SMB land. 
that's very expensive. You know, every time you're going back and forth, like that's more expensive for the seller. It's more expensive, you know, for us because a lot of times it's you know lawyer to lawyer, um, and so you you want to really pay attention to that. Um, you want to pay attention to the, to who's on the seller's team and mm -hmm. do they understand what is normal? That all affects momentum, right, and cost because you know you can't run up. You have to be mindful of the seller's due diligence costs as well. Like if they start racking up a big bill and they don't really see the process going anywhere, yeah. they're going to walk and you're going to be you know, left with dead deal fees, which can kill you, you know, uh, yeah. they're deadly. This whole process was what, 13 months? About a year and a half. Um, and w is it, was there, um, is, was there actually a particular moment that you look back on now that you can identify and be, and, and, and say to yourself, that was the moment I should have vacated this process on that deal? Yeah. When, when the seller and I, I'm a bigger guy, I'm, you know, over six feet tall, you know, former college football player. This, this seller happened to be a big, big guy, bigger than me, taller than me. Um, and when he, uh, you know, when, when the seller sort of gets in your face and sort of, you know, cusses you out, um, you know, inches away from your face, you know, just weeks before you're supposed to give that man, you know, a couple million dollars, like, that's usually a good indicator. Like, something's <laughs> wrong here. Like, that's not, no like, you don't normally treat someone like that. Like, mm, maybe should have walked there. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, so that, I mean, that's just not, that's a good one. It's not normal. Right. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> no. weird. Um, but yeah, I learned. Okay. All right, Ben. Well, you're 18 months in, you are 150 grand in what, what is life looking like and feeling like now? How, and how, like, what are your emotions like yeah. finally having this deal kind of collapse you being this incredibly persistent person that you are yeah yeah um i mean i'm also lucky when steve supported me throughout the whole time too so he you know he believed in me and like he bet on me and so you know, i'm very fortunate that i even had the ability to even and so did like you know my parents and i had you know i had saved i had saved up some money to fund this mm -hmm. um so at that point i had run out of money completely uh and so i'm you know however old I was, you know, over 30 valedictorian of my class at NYU, you know, with no job, um, no money and sitting at home. Uh, and I'm like, man, uh, <laughs> this is pretty bad. <laughs> like, this is pretty bad. Uh, I should probably turn off the heat because like, I need to start, you know, saving money. So, like, you know, turn you know, turn off the heat and you know, wear sweatshirts. Like, I'm like, man, this is pretty brutal. Like, is this, do I want to continue to pursue this? And if I do, like, how exactly am I going to do that? Um, and so like when that sort of fell through and, and you know, I'm like, man, like, how am I going to pay back this money? Um, uh, like, how are you going to pay back money? So you the, started the, the one, the 150 grand. Cause I mean, those like, I mean, I ended up borrowing some of it from my parents. Um, so I, you had depleted your own savings completely. and, I, and borrowed money. Yeah. So you're now in debt. Now I'm levering my personal balance sheet. Yep. Um, yep. Wow. And so I had completely, because it took so long, I completely ran out of savings because it's not normal for a search to take this long. Um, completely ran out of savings, you know, was totally all in on this business. Um, and I'm, you know, also very fortunate like, uh, that I have the parents and family that I do. Um, yeah. You know, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly fortunate and grateful. Um, but I'm like, man, like, you know, my parents are retired. Like they don't have, you know, millions of dollars. So like, they're like 
you know, they need that money. Like, you know, and so uh, I'm like, man, like I screwed myself. I screwed my parents. Like, this is a totally not a good situation. Um, uh, and I was really depressing. I mean, I think like mental health and, you know, I know that people have talked about it here, but um, just in the space in general, but like, that's a real thing. Like it's an emotional roller coaster, and yeah. you have to have a really good support team. But yeah, I was super depressed. Um, uh, it's 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 an emotional roller coaster, um, and so I ended up um, doing a lot of freelance work on uh, on Upwork and some of these other freelance sites. Um, there's a big need out there for due diligence uh, consultants, and um, so I I turned on another revenue stream because you know I still have a mortgage payment to make, and I'm like shit. Like I don't have any money. Like, I, like this is not good. But I don't want to go back to corporate America and give up on the search completely. Like, what can I sell? Like, I need to sell something to get. Like, oh, I can sell like services of my skills. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I started doing that, and that was like super lucrative. Um, super lucrative. And so I was like, okay, like <laughs> I think that I can get out of here, like out of this hole. Like, um, I, you know, I think I can get out of this hole, um, which is. It was pretty depressing. I mean, being in your 30s, like, you know, it's hard to date. You know, girls don't want to date a guy who's 30 and doesn't have a job and doesn't have a shit together. Like, you know, they're, you know, it's, you're supposed to have already had all those things together by this point, right? Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. So it's like, how do I tell that story? Like, that's a tough pitch, right? Like, no one's going like, to. And you're like, no, I, I'm buying a business. And they're like, yeah, man. What? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, sh show me, right? Like, <laughs> yep. <And laughs> until, so, you, until you got the keys to that business, like, that's. The most fanciful notion in the world. Nope. Like, who's going to believe that? Nope. Tough to get girls uh, in that situation. Pretty tough. Yeah. Um, pretty tough. So I was like, okay, like, fuck, I can't date. Like, and so you have to really look at you. This is one of those moments where I'm like, man, you know, I go to bed, you know, cry myself to sleep every night, probably for a couple of months there. And, you know, I'm like, man, is this really what, like, what did I get myself into? Like, <laughs> what, like, I just, you know, what did I get myself into? Um, and is this something that I really think I can be successful at? Is this something that I really think is a good investment of time, money? Like, is this really what I want to go do? Um, and so I, I questioned myself a lot and I was like, okay, like, let's start at the beginning. Like, why did I even get into this in the beginning? Like, let me go back and like, refresh my analysis. And so I read, um, some of the first chapters in the Harvard business review book. Um, and it was about sort of doing that internal assessment. And like every time I went back to, you know, this internal assessment, like, you know, framework, I was like, man, yes, this is me. Yes, this is me. And you know, I just, mm -hmm. check, and I'm like, all right, I'm doing this. And um, so, you know, throughout that whole time, when I'm focused on, you know, this particular business, my partner, Steve, uh, was uh, talking about another business uh, that was also in manufacturing. Um, and his friend, uh, his close friend was actually the, the advisor, the M&A advisor that, um, that the sellers had hired to sell this business. And so, you know, this, you know, our first, you know, uh, due diligence process like lasted forever, but I kept hearing about this business. Like, and Steve, you know, would talk about it and I'm like, okay, Steve, like, that sounds cool. Like, but like, I'm trying to focus on this one right now. Like, like you know, I want to do, close this one. And it, it just kept coming up. Um, and so finally, um, after you know, the first deal sort of fell through, um, you know, Steve brought it up again. He's like, Hey, like my friend's still trying to sell this. Like it's been in a couple of years. Like I think they're, he's having hard, a hard time selling this business. I'm like, well, like, what is it? What, what do they do again? Like, and Steve was like, well, like they manufacture something like with metal and like, 
I think it's used to like, you know, these pieces are used to like measure things. And I'm like, okay, let's take a look. Like, let's, let me see it. You know, after all these years of hearing this, you know, I'm like, let me, let me see it. Um, and I was like, wow, <laughs> this is like the, you know, your first look at this, you're like, wow, like, why are they having trouble selling this? Like something's, what's wrong? Like something's wrong here. What did you, what was the business and what did you, what was so clearly attractive about it? Yeah. So the business was the one that we ended up buying, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Meyer Gage, Meyer Gage company. Meyer Gage. Yep. Uh, it is just a coincidence. Named for the founder, Al Meyer. Yes. Named after Al Meyer. Yep. Who founded the business. And I can talk to you about that. Cause I think that, um, I call him the Steve Jobs of the, uh, the fixed limit gauge world. Fixed limit, you know, gauges are, I'm talking about cylindrical pin gauges specifically. Um, you know, two inches long cylindrical pieces of steel that are ground down to super um, tight tolerances. And they're just used to not measure, but uh, they're used to inspect um, holes that are machined into any and everything. And it's just used for a pass-fail test. That's it. Um, so you're not measuring anything. You're just testing whether a machined hole is, was machined to spec, pass-fail. That's it. Um, and so it's a super cheap way to maintain super tight, you know, quality standards. So Ben, you, I, I run a factory manufacturing something yep. during the manufacturing process, holes are punched or drilled yep. into whatever material, some, let's say steel, and to make sure those holes are the right diameter. Yep. Diameter. Yep. I, I take these, these, I'll have like a, a box of pins of varying sizes, just like you would have like a, you know, you screwdrivers of varying Correct. the yep. heads of various sizes. Yep. These are these are your product and I and I open it up and there and I pull out a cylinder of what this hole is supposed to be and I slide in uh, I slide in your cylinder and if it fits snugly or as it's supposed to or doesn't fit or whatever that tells me pass like you said pass fail if the hole is correct if the hole is correct or not and these tolerances can be incredibly precise yep we're talking right? like millions of an inch um millions of an inch millions of microns yeah yeah i mean um so yeah the these these you know and again we're talking about pin gauges specifically pin gauges are just a one of many types of fixed limit gauges which that's a conversation for another day um mm. but we're talking about just good old-fashioned plain pin gauges um Okay. And that just means there's no threads on them, like a, like a screw. Um, so these are just, you know, plain, uh, you know, uh, plain cylindrical pieces of steel. Um, mm-hmm. uh, anytime in, you know, in manufacturing, when you're, um, you know, machining these holes, like, um, and when you are um, producing these parts, like there's a tolerance limit of what, you know, what's acceptable. Um, there's mm-hmm. a, it's a range because um, it's impossible to produce identically, you know, identical pieces. You know, you're never going to be able to do that. So, um, there's a tolerance limit. Um, and so you use pin gauges are typically used for what's called go, no go gauging. Um, Mm -hmm. so like you take, you know, your, uh, you know, your lower limit of what's acceptable. You take a, the, the, the appropriate size gauge for that, you know, test that, if that, you know, the go gauge, you know, if that goes through, like, that's good. You look at the upper limit of what's acceptable, you know, take that and you pick the right size pin. Um, uh, test that. Okay. The pin goes through. Okay. That's good. Then you take your no go pin and you typically want to size that just so it's like just a little bit over the outside limits of what's acceptable. Um, and if that can't go through, um, then the part is machined, uh, to spec and you're in tolerance and 
you're good to go. So it's quick, easy, and relatively cheap compared to other um, methods of, of quality control. These are used mm -hmm. in you know quality control um, uh, you know, efforts throughout the manufacturing process. I mean, you know, typically you know uh, it, they're used in yeah, any industry really. Anything that has a hole that's machined into it. So I mean, that's auto. That's aerospace. That's literally you know. <laughs> it's, it's so anybody listening industry. to this who knows manufacturing would probably have heard of this, a piece like this, uh, or, yeah, or if they if they if they have their hands on the manufacturing yes, line. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, and and when I started to, you know, peel back the layers of the onion, like when I started to talk about this with people that had experience in manufacturing, they were like, "Oh yeah, I know Meyer gauge." Like, "Oh yeah," like, and I'm like, "Wow, like that's weird." Wow. Like, how do you know <laughs> that? Like, that's. Um, but I also liked it that like I, you know, you walk up to somebody, you know, walking down the street and you say, hey, do you know what a, a pin gauge is? Nine times out of 10, they're going to say, I have no idea what that is. Just like I yeah. never heard of it in my life. Um, and I liked that. Like that's, I was like, okay, cool. Like this is a weird, like this is yeah. weird. Like, and that's, I loved it. And so Ben, so you, you like the weirdness of it. You like that, that it's so niche -y. You like that it's seemingly enduringly profitable anything else that you liked about it and when you when you saw that sim and you were like wait why has why is this having a hard time selling the first thing that um i sort of think about is like industry industry structure because that's what determines your success your financial success or i should say that's what determines your the financial characteristics of your of your business is the industry structure um mm, businesses yeah. don't function by themselves they function within an industry so if you don't understand the structure of that industry like you know, if that industry isn't attractive for various reasons, like it doesn't matter how good the business is. Like I don't care if it's the best business in the world. If it functions in an unattractive industry, like I'm out. What's the industry structure here and why is it so attractive? Yeah, yeah. So I started to dig into this um, more and more. And like there was no 800 pound gorilla in the space. Um, uh, <laughs> so it was a, it's an oligopoly. So there's only a handful, you know, maybe five or six or seven companies, um, you know, in the country that make fixed limit gauges at all. And it's, that can include pin gauges, that includes ring gauges, other types of, um, uh, other types of, of fixed limit gauging, but there's only a few players in the space and they all seem to be sort of the same, sort of these family owned, family founder owned, Business has been around for a long time. And I learned that like, it was sort of like very incestuous. Like our biggest competitors were also our customers and they were also our suppliers. And we all sort of, we all sort of work together and know each other. And I'm like, wow, like, that's really cool. Like, that's like, you know, the, you pick up your economics textbook and you read the characteristics of an oligopoly. Like this checks off all these boxes and like, mm. that's attractive, right? Like you're not competing on price in an oligopoly. Like, that's really cool. Like I wanted to find a business where it doesn't compete on price because you get yeah. into that situation. Um, that's just Race not attractive. To the bottom. Uh, it's yeah. not attractive. And so, um, Meyer Gage is currently the only company in the world, um, that, that we know of that I can find that produces class Z and class X full pin gauge sets. Um, uh, there's, you know, there are other companies in the, in the world that, do produce um, pin gauge sets of, you know, class double Z, for example. Um, but we are the only company in the world that does you know, full pin gauge sets at class C and class X, which is really cool. Um, and that, that I liked that. Um, there gives us that margin of safety where, you know, if we make a mistake, um, 
and we've made a lot like you know things don't go our way for various reasons like it 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 doesn't sink our ship um yeah it doesn't sink and that's really really important but um yeah so that's sort of the the space great give us a sense of of the size of the business in terms of uh dollars and headcount yep yep um so um the in terms of like you know revenue you're you're looking at you know north of you know 3.5 to you know 3.5 million to 4 million you're in that range you know every year you know in that range um uh headcount i guess we have 17 total employees uh a few probably uh probably two or three are part time um and the rest are full time uh and so and you know, you're looking at ebitda adjusted ebitda margins of you know you're in the mid 20s there um consistently and uh you know year after year you see this sort of the same financial results and like that's one of the things that you look for is like you look for stability right when you're like going to put leverage on the business um you know you're levering cash flows like one of the key things right is you know you want it to be stable right you know you're not looking for something that's cyclical or seasonal like you know ideally you want it to be you know nice and steady um yep and that's you know that's another thing that we found with this business it was like man like that's really like cool. And, you know, you talk about, um, you know, churn, right. Um, you know, customer attrition, whatever, you know, there's like none, <laughs> you know, but is it, are they recurring is uh, contracts? Cause I imagine yeah. that the ga a set of gauges is something you just buy sporadically. Yeah. Great question. There are no contracts. Um, we don't have any contracts. Um, uh, we, uh, it is the same, you know, I'm talking about like the top, uh, probably the top 25 customers, like they've been the top 25 customers for, you know, decades, um, decades. Um, like people, wow. you know, we have two people in the office specifically, um, uh, you know, I won't name their names, but, you know, one has been here for 19 years. One has been there for, for 20 years. They like, they've seen these customers, like they've seen the, uh, uh, the ownership change hands, like uh, at our, you know, various customers. They knew you know, the, the current owner's father, and now they, you know, so now they know that, um, you know, uh, that person's uh, son or daughter is you know, now running the business. Okay. So let's get into the weeds of the deal itself a little bit cool. and, and return to your relationship with Steve. Steve's yep. been supporting you, believes in you this whole time. Uh, tell us about how you're going to structure this deal. You know, you're not, you're not a traditional searcher, you're self-funded. Yep. Um, so are you going to go after this with kind of a 10, 10, 80 style or 20, 80, 80 SBA loan? What's it, what, what are you envisioning and what happens? What we went with was a conventional loan. Um, so I had, you know, during the search process, I had developed a relationship with just a few really good, you know, commercial lenders. Each has, a, you know, their own sort of underwriting box, right. Or lending appetite. Um, and, um, this deal just happened to be a really good fit for this person's, uh, you know, underwriting box. His name's Adam Regnery, um, mm -hmm. you know, first bank of New Jersey. Um, you know, they are, um, you know, first at that, you know, when we closed a couple months ago, you know, the banking space has definitely changed since then with, you know, <laughs> a lot of the bank failures, uh, since then, but at that time, uh, they had, you know, an appetite to grow in sort of the SMB and ETA space. Um, and so, uh, he, like he also trusted me, which is something I, you know, I'm very grateful uh, for. And and so we uh, structured out a conventional loan that was um, sort of atypical for them, um, you know, which again, I appreciate the, the freedom and flexibility, but, um, you know, I won't go into, you know, the, 
specifics, but you know, just in, you know, things that we looked at um, were like you know the amortization structure um, versus you know the term of the loan, um, you know, timing of payments, you know, quarterly versus monthly, um, and you know. These were all different levers that, you know, I nerd, I, I, I love this stuff, right? And Ben, why didn't you go SBA? Yeah, I didn't go SBA because, like, I, um, I didn't like the, it's sort of a cookie cutter uh, type of structure. At least I found the 7A loan specifically I'm talking about. The 504 program, I, I don't know a ton about, so I won't even talk about that here. But uh, 7A loan specifically, 10-year term, like, obviously that's normal than a conventional, uh, you know, term loan, right? So that, you know, that part was interesting. But um I I didn't like the um, I didn't like the the different like personal guarantee stuff with that and depending on the bank um, you know the seller we you know wanted to use the seller note and did use the seller note like the seller may um, have to take a back seat like um, uh, on like their you know, principal and interest payments again depends on the bank um, but like yeah no seller is going to go for seller financing if like their cash flows don't start until year five like it's just not a, that's a tough like that's a tough sell right. Um, so I was like, I don't even want to get into all that. Like, I want to work with someone like who I have a personal relationship with, who has like freedom to structure, um, uh, you know, a debt package based on what we need now, and but also has the freedom to like, you know, structure it, you know, change it going forward without having to like do a complete refi. And that sounds good for sure, but there's got to be a catch. Why? Why don't more people that I talk to use conventional financing? I think yeah. the answer is probably that they can't. Like the uh, SBA, the SBA loan is ma- makes makes deals like this attractive to banks in a way that maybe they wouldn't otherwise be. There's that piece. I mean, I think. I mean, it, it, this is sort of a conceptual thing. I mean, I think it comes down to like uh, something that has nothing to do with the debt at all. It has to do with the equity. Uh, you know, your equity check. I think you can. I think people sort of. What's attractive about the SBA program, at least in my opinion, in this space, is like um, you can. In, you know, you can, I don't say that this is normal, which is, I don't, it's not, but like, you know, it's as advertised, you know, you can get up to like 90% like LTV on the, you know, yep. you're, you're, and so I was like, wow, I only have to come up with 10% and the, you know, the seller note can, you know, now it's, I only need 5% in some situations. Like that's, that's attractive, right? Like that's the goal with like, these are all leveraged buyouts, right? So like you, the goal is put as little equity in as you can and lever up the cash flows you know, as much as you can. And, you know, try to survive like that. That's how you maximize your, your IRR. But um, yeah, so I think it's the equity contribution and the, those mm-hmm. requirements. And obviously that, you know, the required equity check, like size of that, you know, is uh, dictated by like, you know, the credit cycle and, you know, uh, different, you know, lending appetites and stuff. So um, that's a big, I think that that's a big reason why people go that route. And, and kind of w- based on your relationship with Steve, you felt like you were going to be able to put more equity into this deal. I mean, via, or, or I should say Steve, your investor, whatever, yeah. however, your access to capital was maybe a little bit fuller than somebody who's doing the SBA loan. Yeah, I, w- I, I wasn't and like, and this is what I'm you know, super grateful for is like, it wasn't just, you know, the Ben Breyer show. It wasn't me doing it by myself. It was like mm. Ben and Steve. And so you know, Steve gave me a, you know, a ton of re- freedom to, you know, go run, go find a business, go, you know, anything. Um, and, you know, he and I were very much on the same page with what we were looking for. Obviously, I'm not going to put us in a you know, shitty situation. Um, but um, I believe that, like, you know, based on my experience, like, if you can find an attractive deal, like, and by deal, I mean attractive business, attractive, you know, uh, valuation, attractive situation from an operational perspective and a human capital perspective, like, you can find something that is attractive 
money, like is not a problem. Um, right. And um, so Steve, you know, was responsible for all, I guess I'll call it all the junior capital. Um, we ended up going with like a sort of a mez type of uh, junior capital piece. Um, but we did, you know, uh, a um, uh, term loan, I should say, just I should back up for a second. We did a term loan, we did a seller note, and then uh, and then we did uh, a mez piece um, as sort of our junior capital. Um, and and uh, Ben, for for the uninitiated, what is mez? What is mezzanine debt? There's not really one definition of it other than to say it's, you know, junior debt. Um, you know, it's subordinate to you know, your senior debt, your bank debt, you know, your term loan. Um, if you have that, or a revolver, you have that. Um, so it's it's uh, it's typically uh, your your junior junior capital um, piece um, has some equity participation. So you know, in exchange for being subordinated, like investors are probably going to want some upside, right? So uh, there's a you know, conversion piece, you know, um, mm-hmm. or you know, which can come in many different forms: warrants, conversion rights, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, so I would just say if I had to define it, I would say it's a, you know, subordinated, um, piece of, uh, of, of capital that's kind of like debt, but also has upside. So, and, and why does it make its way into some deals and not others? Is it kind of, is it kind of like a, when there, when there's kind of a gap that needs to be filled? Cause it's always like a smaller piece of the overall it, deal. Yeah. I mean, it can be, I mean, um, uh, it can be sometimes, you know, you, you, I guess MES can be used as a, as a bridge or bridge financing, you know, to, you know, sort of fill in a gap that, that needs to be filled in the cap structure. Because conventional loans are so underused in self-funded search where the SBA 7A loan rules. Is there any other information that you, you want to leave the audience with about that? I mean, is this, would you say everybody should look at conventional loans and they just, they don't, don't do it enough or? What, what, any other takeaways or have we hit it all? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I mean, if I had to just say succinctly, I mean, uh, you want to consider all of your options and, um, uh, you, and again, like you ne- will never get something that you don't ask for. So, um, I think with conventional loans, like, you know, you can be creative and so, but yeah. you're only going to be as creative as the, you know, your banker allows you. So having that relationship, um, with, um, you know, with your lending partner, um, is really, really important. Um, and so, I mean, uh, I think it definitely takes more work and you definitely have to sort of love, you know, capital structure and, you know, debt modeling and all that stuff. Like, um, the better you are at that, the more familiar you are with that, um, the easier those conversations can, can become. But, um, I mean, I think, you know, just from, you know, just IRR math from an IRR math perspective, I mean, the a seven day loan can make sense if you're really trying to, you know, minimize your, you know, your equity check. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, there's, you know, a lot of ways to skin the cat there, but I definitely think it's, it's, uh, people should not just default to thinking SBA seven a loan. Um, Great. it's, you want to explore, uh, cause it's, it, it can be depending on the credit environment can be flexible. Uh, you can get creative. Ben, the $150,000 in expenses that you'd accumulated, mostly attributable, attributable to your broken deal uh, from the, uh, the precision metal um, fabrication business, what of those $150,000? I can say that um, the, those debt deal fees, like we, we were able to sort of roll into um, 
our you know our deal with Meyer Gage, um, which happened you know probably about a year, a little over a year later. Um, uh, and so we were able to um, like I was able to you know pay back my parents and you know make some of the people hold that had money to um, with um, you know with you know based on our agreement that I had with Steve and our lending partners and stuff you know based on the cash flows of Meyer Gage. Um, is that is, you know, those were costs that were incurred as part of our search. Um, and we did use a lot of lessons learned during that process to make our, um, due diligence process with Meyer Gage like, much more efficient. And, um, so that was just all part of like sort of our search. So, right. So it's, so everybody is going to come to the closing table when they do find a business with some accumulated expenses related to their search. Yeah. And, and, and that's often just kind of rolled into the transaction. Yeah. And then if there's, and then you can kind of take and that, that should money be back part out. of your LBO yeah. analysis, right? Like that's a, yeah. one of the main inputs is like, you know, your transaction expenses, like what are you, exactly. what's normal. But in, and so in your case, it, yours wasn't really probably any different than most people listening other than probably being bigger. I mean, probably most people don't get up to 150, but yeah. they're going to have some, they're going to have some number between zero and a hundred thousand probably. And, yeah. and so, yeah, okay. I mean, typically, I mean, uh, uh, depends on who you talk to, but I mean, any, you're typically it's somewhere between like three and 5% of enterprise value. So, yeah, um, for transaction costs. Yeah. 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 You're probably in, you know, talking legal and accounting typically, but you're probably somewhere in there. If it's just legal and accounting, um, you layer in environmental that's can be a whole different ball game, but, um, yeah. From a transaction but, that, cost but that's transaction costs. Yep. A lot of people in this world are going to also have had a broken deal or two, which oh, will have oh, accumulated yeah. other other expenses that go to nothing. Basically, yep. and in yeah. a way, I mean, and you can, like your 150. Right. Right. And it's all sort of how you treat that with like your your investors, right? Um, it's really a function of how long your your sort of horizon is. I, I won't say investment mm -hmm. horizon, but maybe it is investment horizon because you are investing time and money, like what's your, like your search horizon? Like, is it like, you know, is it 18 months or, you know, after that we're out or is it like, Hey man, like I'm backing you up for the long term, like mm -hmm. whatever it takes. And so that just is, you, you got to have a good team. Uh, and I really recommend building, focusing on your team first and getting people to sort of buy into what you're looking to do, um, over the long term. Um, because this is a, like, this can be a marathon. Um, it can be it's interesting, Ben, because you were you're kind of on paper a self funded searcher, but in because you did self fund your search, but then you ran out of money, and you and Steve helped helped you continue to search, help continue yep. finance your search, yep. and you yep. borrowed money from your personal friends and family. Yeah, and so in some ways, it, but in, it, he's also your investor, so in some ways you know, that, that starts to move a little bit in the direction of like a, a traditional search fund where you, where you've established relationships with investors who fund right. your search. Right. So, right. so, you know, and, I, and I'm not trying to be too strict on labels here, but, it, but it's, 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 it's interesting yeah. as it, yeah, exactly. It's a combination. I mean, and the other thing is like, I, during that, this time I also like, I mean, I, I discovered freelancing, um, uh, which I love and I think is really cool. And I think more people should think about that. Um, uh, so I, I discovered, I started with Upwork and moved on to a couple of different other platforms, but like freelancing was definitely a big source of income and sort of helped me mm -hmm. get through that time. Um, and so if there are other self-funded searchers out there, like there are other people who are searching for businesses and some of them go to 
Upwork for help. It's a really interesting way to connect with people. Um, and who knows, maybe the people you meet on Upwork can be, you know, your advisors or your investors. Like there's a lot of people on Upwork, for example, that's just one of many, but like, that's something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we had talked about in our pre-call, Ben, is it was the IT, the mm. the tech debt, as they would say in yeah. Silicon Valley, uh, that you encountered when you got there. And you you thought that this was something that doesn't get enough attention, like IT due diligence. Um, and I'll, just jumping ahead a little bit, like I was struck that you said that because one of the kind of patterns that you you hear talked about in our world is that we expect the tech stack of the business that we're acquiring to be retrograde. <laughs> and that and that's one of the opportunities is to bring tech yeah. where there isn't tech or to upgrade the tech. But your take is a little bit different. Your take is that it's really this liability that you should kind of know about in model, in your LBO model, I guess, in, in advance. So elaborate, please. I mean, like just ETA diligence. I mean, your goal, like one of the main, your main task really is, I guess you have two, is to maintain your relationship with the seller and to close, right? And so typically, again, I hate making broad, big, broad sweeping statements, but um, uh, with, you know, typically with some of the baby boomers uh, who own some of the businesses that we were looking at, uh, for example, like they're not the most technically savvy people of all time. Like it just, they didn't need that to have success in the business world. There was no, like, it just, a, you know, they didn't need to have those skills. Um, and so when you're doing, when you're doing diligence, um, the understanding of what tech debt really is and how big that liability really is, is something that probably doesn't get enough attention, most likely because if you bring it up with the seller, um, again, you have to think about when you bring it up in the diligence process, but, um, most likely, I mean, again, this is just my experience. Um, typically some, they're not going to really want to talk about it that much, right? Like, like if you're in your thirties, like you have a very different, typically you have a very different level of comfort and sophistication than someone in their sixties with, when it comes to it and like, you know, systems. And so like, they're probably not going to want to talk about that very much because mm -hmm. it's something that they are not typically not super familiar with, or they don't care mm -hmm. about because they don't need to care about that. And, um, so it's a fine line. You get to balance that, but, um, like the business or you know, businesses run on that stuff. Like <laughs> businesses run on the ERP system, for example. And so, um, it's, it's hard to, cause you want to, again, maintain a relationship with the seller. You don't want to piss them off. You don't want to annoy them. Um, uh, it's hard to, it's an area of diligence that is, I think, really, really important and should probably be talked about sort of sooner in the process than, than later. Um, when it comes to sort of staging your diligence process, um, it's, if the company uses an ERP system, for example, like really, you really want to dig into that, um, and understand like, okay, like, does this meet our needs? Cause like the seller's needs, uh, most likely are going to be very different from what your needs are from an IT perspective and also from a financial reporting perspective, which your financial reporting capabilities are going to be a function of your IT systems. Um, so like you have to think like, okay, this business works really well for the sellers. Like, you know, this setup, you know, will this work for us? And if, and if not, um, what's the plan for addressing that? Like, is this something that we can address before we close? Is this something that we should address post-close? And if so, how long will that take? Um, 
candidly, we, we like, we sort of, I underestimated this, um, how important this is. I wish I had spent more time in diligence on our accounting system and which is, you know, our ERP system. Um, I, I, I wish I spent more time understanding that because, uh, and sort of thinking through that, because when you close, like from, a, again, from a financial reporting perspective, like you're on the clock right now, like you're, you know, you are owning and running a business that you are producing financial results that you're going to have to show to lenders and investors. Like, are you prepared to actually collect the information you need to produce those reports? Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's definitely something you want to think through, um, before closing. Um, because more and more as you know, we go forward here, like I believe that every business is going to be a tech business, right? Like it is going to be just become more and more, uh, important. It's going to be, you know, play a bigger role in any business. Um, yeah. So it's something to really, really think about and understand like, you know, what changes need to be made, uh, if any, to the, uh, the tech stack and when does it make sense to do that? Uh, how does it make sense you know, to talk? How does it, you know, how do you talk about that with the seller if at all and when? Um, so it's, it's something that should definitely be a super high priority. One of the features of your, um, deal, Ben, is that you were going to, you, you brought in a CEO as you bought the business and your actual official title, even though you're, you're kind of the, the principal here, um, was going to be CFO. How has that gone? Steve and I were it started to focus on manufacturing and obviously I've never worked a day in manufacturing in my life. Like I literally can't even turn the lights on in here. Like, I mean, uh, like I have no experience in manufacturing zero. And so like, um, Steve has some, but like, you know, it would be really nice. We both thought to like have someone that, you know, we, I can learn from someone who has more experience with this, like someone who could help me get up the learning curve. Um, someone who could, you know, run the operations while I sort of worked on the finance stuff. Um, and so like, we, we found a guy came in part of the management team, um, and, you know, just post-close, um, we just realized it, it, uh, it just wasn't a great fit, um, for, um, for a few reasons. So now, uh, currently, um, I've taken on uh, some of, uh, the, you know, typical CEO responsibilities, uh, and, uh, it's been interesting. It's been an interesting time. Um. Uh, I have learned that, um, like time allocation is critically important. Um, and when, you know, in S and B as a, a leader of a, a firm, like it's, there's only, you only have so much capacity and bandwidth. And so like being able to like delegate is super important. Being able to have the people who you trust to be able to delegate to is really important, but it's definitely been pretty rocky. Um, uh, definitely been pretty rocky as, you know, I, I'm sort of learning and getting up the learning curve, but, um, it's, it, this, you know, again, because things that you don't expect will definitely happen. Um, it, it makes it really important that you understand, um, your, the resources that you have. So it obviously is one, but like the more important one, and this is a great place to even talk about this is like the employees. Um, Steve and I got so lucky with the employees that we have in this building. And I will get, uh, I will get choked up if I talk about it too much, but, uh, <laughs> we do have, we do have, um, you know, we have a lady who's worked here for 33 years, a person who's worked here for 28 years, uh, probably three or four people that have worked here for 20 years. And so just the resources that we have in the support system that like I have here and them is like invaluable. And, um, we've like 
bonded, you know, um, together as we've sort of gone through these different experiences and it's been a really fun ride, but, um, uh, I would say like, it's also important to understand, like, if you're thinking about buying a business, you have to think through like, who's going to be on my team? Like, and so if you can, not every business owner allows this, but if you can spend some time in the business, uh, before the deal closes, is just so important. And we're lucky, you know, Jamie and John, uh, who we bought the business from, you know, they're Al Myers, uh, sons, like Jamie and John, um, at that point had been, you know, had sort of danced the dance with a couple different potential buyers. And they're just candidly, they were just sort of tired of the whole process. Um, <laughs> and which I can appreciate and I get, and they were just great, you know, gracious enough to allow us to sort of spend time in the business post or pre-close. And so we got to really understand who we had on our team and, I think that that was really important and that sort of has helped us, at least has helped me um, navigate some of these sort of unexpected um, twists and turns in the road um, because we have built rapport and we trust each other and it's just super important. Ben, what about if you brought in, you like had the management team, was you, Steve, and this third person who is going to be the kind of the oper head of operations, the CEO of this small business and then that doesn't work out and you're left as the sole person. I mean, doesn't that, that double your work? Now you are the leader of a manufacturing business and, and you know, you're very, very, very new to manufacturing. Are you trying to refill this now empty position or are you just going to carry on as the now sole leader on the management team? What has happened here in the first few months is um, uh, a, a lot of the people who have worked here for a lot, long time. Um, they have stepped up and, um, you know, they have grown into more, you know, more management type positions. Um, they've, you know, taken on more responsibility. They've helped advise me, um, on different situations. And so, uh, we have, you know, three or four people in this company specifically who have like really stepped up, um, and just taken on, a lot more responsibility and have helped me, uh, sort of go through, um, you know, this process. And I mean, it sucks, but like when any time with any group of people, if you face, you know, adversity or some, you know, major unexpected changes, like you're going to find out who's on your team real quick and you're going to find out like who can play ball and like who can't. Right. Um, and, but it takes at that adversity to even to be able to find that, you know, to see mm -hmm. the people's true colors and, to understand like the true makeup of like your team. Um, mm -hmm. like, you, you know, like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan to get punched in the mouth, right? Like, so when you get punched in the mouth, like you got to see, you know, who, who, how are we going to respond? How are people going to react? What's, and, um, it's been really cool to, to see, um, how people have responded to everything. I mean, people at this company really care about this company. They're you know, totally invested and in, like, I'm just so grateful to be a part of like that team. So it doesn't sound like you're racing to fill the. Not at all. Um, yeah. I mean, like as we grow and change and, you know, we go forward, like, you know, obviously like, you know, in constant change. Right. And so like our HR needs will change and grow as we, you know, change and, uh, you know, as our sort of needs change. Cause I mean, we, people here have worked here for a long time. Right. And so eventually, you know, they're going to, people are going to retire and we're going to have new people. And, yeah. Our needs will change, but I mean, right now, uh, I love our team, man. Um, we don't, um, we're good. Great. So you are 
a searcher and now owner with investors, operator of the business. And what you were really inspired by was Steve Garrow back going back to when you're when you're in class remotely via Zoom and he's speaking to the class and it just really resonates what his career is with you. How, how do you like what you're doing now as an operator, very, very in the business versus what my impression is that Steve does, which is more, he's like you said, he's got his hands in a lot of different things. And I, I assume not an, an operator in any in any one thing, more of an independent sponsor. I think you, you, you've characterized him to me uh, before as. Um, so does that, how do you kind of compare and contrast the, the models of entrepreneurship that the two of you have chosen? Yeah, it's, um, Steve has, and I should say, I mean, he has operated, owned and not, he's, he has been in the operator seat before. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, he brings, he's just a helpful resource from that perspective as well. But, um, uh, obviously this, it's very different. I mean, like, yes, I used to be like, you know, a guy, you know, the finance guy, right. Take your feet up on the desk, whip around Excel stuff, go home. But like, you know, and you're like, man, like this business, you know, isn't doing well, or this business is doing really well. Like, I mean, being the guy that's actually pulling those levers on the ground is very different, um, which is the you know nature of your question. Um, I love it. It's definitely been um, something I've, I've grown into um, and have gotten better at over time. Um, this is, I mean, it's a learning experience, right? You got to love learning. Like, um, uh, but it's been it's been totally liberating for me um, to be able to you know, make decisions, you know, have autonomy in like my life and my career. Um, and to really just have the buy-in from people, um, everybody, investors, Steve, mm -hmm. employees, like it's been awesome. Um, it's, but you're still learning at the end of the day. Like that's what this is all about. Um, you're learning about the people you have on your team. You're learning about, um, different op business opportunities. You're learning about the industry. You're learning, I'm learning manufacturing, you know, it's, you have to love that. Um, so, I mean, I would say it's, yes, it's very different in terms of like your responsibilities and the impact of some of the, the decisions that you make. But I, I think that if you really have an appreciation and love for just like the learning process, right? Like it's a, it's, you know, just, I love the process, man. Like I love the deal process. I love the operating process. If you just love that and you love learning about it, like making that transition is, uh, not, you know, it's going to be a lot easier. It won't be as daunting. Um, what about the going all the way back to where you were in in finance, but thinking to yourself that any alpha was going to be kind of technology to away, and so you wanted to get away from the computer screen and and kind of learn about the businesses, the lower the the opportunities in lower mar middle market business sales and operations, which is where we all are now. D do you feel like that thesis or hunch that you had that there that there was alpha hiding hiding out? in this space has borne out? Um, I do. I do. Um, I mean, obviously like, you know, we haven't had a big exit or whatever. And you know, the question of like when and how you exit or if you exit at all, it's a completely separate topic, but, um, and, and sorry, Ben, when did you close? I don't think I got oh, that. From sorry. You. Apologize. February of 2023. Okay. So we're six months in six, uh, seven months in. Yep. Yep. Seven months yeah. in time flies. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say yes. Continue, please. I mean, I would say mm -hmm. yes. I mean, um, you know, alpha sort of in air quotes is a you know, function of, you know, information flow and how information flows in a market. Um, and, mm. um, what I like about this space is that like, 
there is no standard, there's no SEC reporting, right? There is no regulatory body that's governing, you know, you know, reporting other than tax returns, which is a little bit different. But um, in this space, like, you're only going to get the information that you ask for. So if you don't know questions to ask, then you don't know the questions to ask. And also, like, just because you ask a question and request a piece of information doesn't mean that the seller wants to give it to you. Like, the seller doesn't have to give you anything. So um, it's, it's that dynamic is, I love uh, because you, you have to build rapport with the sellers. They have to trust you. You have to trust them. And then they have to be willing to give you the information that you ask for. So it's just the whole, it's an art. Like, due diligence is an art. And just obtaining that information is, is fun. And I think that there's because it's so nuanced, um, I think that, I hope that like there is, you know, that alpha um, in this part of, I'll say the broader market, right? Um, and I don't see that really going away anytime soon. Um, uh, so um, that's, I'm happy in this part of, this, right. of the market. Ben, anything that I didn't ask you or that you wanted to make sure that you had a chance to share with the audience? Um, we did cover a lot. Um, um, no, I mean, the only thing that I would, I would say, um, cause I've talked to a lot of people that, you know, are thinking about doing this and, um, you know, or, or you know, all across the, you know, their interest is, is sort of spans the whole sort of spectrum, but I will say, I mean, it's, I'm just a normal guy. Like anybody can do this. I really believe that like, um, you really can do anything you set your mind to. And if you really set your mind to um to this to s and b and eta and the growing and acquiring growing a small business like i believe that anybody can do it it's just mm -hmm. a function of um you know how well you build your team how well you tell your story but like i really i guess the message i, I want to send is like you don't have to go to a super fancy business school like you don't like anybody can do this um it's just a function of networking and uh learning and but yeah i mean it doesn't you don't have to be a superhero here like you mm -hmm. totally do not. Um, so um, it's it's an interesting opportunity uh, for people that um, have that you know right risk tolerance and uh, willingness to uh, to go learn and try it out. Ben Breyer, how can uh, people reach out to you? Yeah, um, people can reach out to me um, via uh, via email is probably the best. Um, okay, um, I, it's just my first initial B as in boy. And then my last name, B is in boy, R-Y-E-R, -E um, I would say at High Spire Holdings. Um, High Spire Holdings. Yep. And you can just go to highspireholdings.com um, and uh, you can contact me through the website there as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I would say that that's probably the best, best way to get in contact with me. Awesome, Ben. Well, thank you very much for giving me so much time and, uh, and sharing the arduous ups and downs of a very long search but uh, Meyer Gage seems like a really, uh, a really neat manufacturing business. So like I said at the top, uh, you, you've earned where you now are. Um, so congratulations. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome. Hopefully people can uh, uh, learn from some of the mistakes I've made and hopefully it gives people some motivation and inspiration to go get hop into ETA. Great. Thanks, Ben. Thank you.